many uh, misunderstandings out there about the role and about the function of the church of Jesus Christ. Are there not so many misunderstandings, misconceptions about what church is all about? Recently, my wife was in conversation with one of her fellow school mums. The mum in question was moaning to Catherine, moaning about the fact that, that in the village in which this woman grew up, the church... It was in danger of being closed down. And Catherine's ears obviously sort of picked up at this. And she's like, oh, wow, I mean, why is she moaning about this? Is there some sort of interest in the church? What's going on here? But alas, it was not the sign of a working of the Holy Spirit. No, this woman was concerned that should the church close down, then the village would not have a suitable wedding venue. That was it. Do you see it? Like in her eyes, what was the church? The church was just a community resource. Like almost at best, the church in her eyes was just a function hall for hire. Now, here's the thing. What about us in here? Like are we actually exempt from similar catastrophic misunderstandings about what the church of Jesus Christ is. What do we think the church is all about? I mean, do we see, if push comes to shove, in a practical sense, do we actually just see the church as being some sort of sanctified social club where we come along and we get to to, to meet and befriend like-minded people? Is that it? Maybe we go to the complete opposite <laughs> extreme with this. Maybe we actually, practically speaking, we just think about the church as being a sort of preaching dispensary. You know, somewhere where we go once a week to get our fix of God's word. And if it's neither of those things, then what is it? Like, what is the church? How should we be viewing the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, tonight we're only, we're only, do you see it? We're only looking at, what is it, three verses here. But get this. One commentator says about these verses, he says that these three verses form the doctrinal heart of the pastoral epistles. So just like this morning, do you remember what we said this morning? The verses might be few, but they're of crucial importance. Why? Because in these three verses, we will learn here from God about the role of the church, the function of the church. We will learn here even about the message of the church of Jesus Christ. So with these things said, I'll I'll ask you to do what I always ask you to do, and that is to please have Scripture open in front of you, to turn back to these verses in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And again, just let me pray, um, and let's ask God for his help. Lord, your word is living, and it is active. And so, Lord in heaven, we we pray to you that you would uh, change us tonight, And we pray that we would hear indeed your voice. But we pray, Lord, in here this evening, this Sunday evening, that you would give us attentiveness to you. That you would give us the the, the eyes to see your glory, but also the ears to hear your voice. 
And we pray that for your name's sake. In Jesus' name, Amen. Okay, uh, three things, God willing, to note from this portion of Scripture. The first thing we should know is the description we have here of the church. Okay, the description of the church. I, I love the, the, the start of this section here because I think we get a, a real insight into the, the mind of the Apostle Paul. Uh, I, I think as far as the church is concerned, the Apostle Paul would be what my dad calls a belt and braces type man. You know, like as far as the, the, the church is concerned, Paul's a safety first type guy, isn't he? Because look at this. Yes, he plans to visit Timothy. Like, that's his plan, that's his intention. I'll go and visit you in Ephesus, Timothy, but, belt and braces, you know, just in case that falls through. Look at this. He's sending this letter full of these instructions anyway. So it's belt and braces, as far as the church is concerned. Now, it's actually the title or the description that Paul gives the church that we need to notice and meditate on here. In the, 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 the original language, in the Greek, Paul calls the church the oikos of God. Oikos. And what does that mean? Well, it could mean a couple of things here. Now, now we've talked about this before, haven't we? Like many of us in here love grand designs. Okay, we love Grand Designs, that, that, that program uh, on TV. You can't beat it, a bit of Kevin MacLeod when you're having your tea watching Grand Designs. We love it. Now, we know how that program works. It's the same every time, isn't it? Like somebody somewhere has got this big idea of their sort of dream house that they want to have, don't they? And they set about building the house and it's this long, laborious process that sucks up every penny that they have and often it also sucks up a lot of their health but at the end it's kind of almost worth it because Kevin McLeod comes in and he speaks in a great way about the, this building that's settling into its environment or something like that you know but we, we get the idea now that is one way in what could understand this word oikos here it could be Paul referring to the church as the house of God, the house of God. Now, we see how that works, don't we? The church is what? It is something uniquely designed by God. What is he doing? He's arranging us, isn't he? As living stones. He's building something in the church, something grand, something impressive. But actually, I don't think that 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 really plums the depth of what Paul is saying here. Wait a minute. What are the people doing in Grand Designs? What are they doing? They're not building just some building, are they? Like, they're not just building a house. What are they building? Like, what's their dream in Grand Designs? They're building a home. Aren't they? Like, they're in their dream. They're envisaging them abiding in this place, living in this place, watching their kids running about and enjoying it. Isn't that right? Well, friends, the way that we should understand oikos here. In First Timothy, what is Paul saying? He's saying that in the church, God is building his household. 
The church is the household of God. And it's not just a, a glorious thing for us this evening. That the church is the family of God. That we are the a household, the household he is building in his very own name. But doesn't it even get better than that? Doesn't it? I mean, think about the implication of what we're being told here. This is God's own household. Do you see what that means for us tonight? It means that almighty, eternal God could have chosen anywhere in this universe to live. And what has he done? He has chosen to live with you. Isn't that a marvelous thought? That God has chosen to live with you. He's chosen to live in you by his Holy Spirit. But he's also in a very special and peculiar way. He chooses to live with us, abide with us just now and here. In a special way when his family get together to worship him. Isn't it awesome? Isn't that a beautiful thought? What are we doing just now? What is happening in here tonight? God. Eternal God condescending to be here to live and abide with us we just now are the household the family of god now that's splendid but are there implications of that for how we should live there are (laughs) there are let's have two of them one if we are the household of God, then surely that must change how we treat each other. Now, you know that that must be the case, isn't it? Like, we cannot, as as Christians in here, we cannot sort of swan into LCPC and back out again once a week. You know, and treat each other as acquaintances and, and, and maybe treat each other, even worse than that, treat each other as strangers. Like, do you see why from this that is utterly unacceptable? It's an inappropriate sort of relationship. Do you see why? We are adopted sons and daughters of God. In Christ Jesus, what are we? We are actually a family. That must change the way that we behave with each other. Why? Because we are, in a very real sense, part of God's household. But then a second implication Think about this. If we are, as the church, if the church is God's household, then surely there are house rules to obey. And that's always the case, isn't it? I was thinking about this this past week. When I was young, much younger, we had a French boy come stay uh, with us as part of a school exchange when I was younger. A French boy coming to stay in the house. Let me tell you, absolute nightmare <laughs> from start to finish. He was the most unruly boy that I've ever met in my this just French whirlwinds, you know, running around the house the whole time. Nightmare. And I, I, I remember I was young at the time, but I still remember thinking, I just wish that my parents <laughs> on the first night that he had arrived, had just taken this French guy aside and just sort of said, Right, these are some guidelines for appropriate behaviour. These are some house rules. But do you see that that is what Paul has got in his mind here, is it not? Listen to what he says. 
I am writing so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. So yeah, this is an awesome thing for us to be, to hold on to and be called. We're the family of God. But look, what's his purpose here? Why is he calling us that? It's so to spur us on to obey the instructions that he set out in the previous chapters. So what are the house rules for the church, for Christians in the church? Well, chapter 3, we live appropriately as elders and deacons in the life of the church. And chapter 2, what's another house rule for Christians in the church? What was chapter 2? We dress appropriately. And we pray appropriately in the life of the church. And any other house rules? What was chapter 1? We fight the good fight appropriately in the life of the church. Why is that important? You see it, don't you? What are we? What are we in here? We're part of something special. We are part of the very family, the very household of the living God. So we see a description of the church. Second thing that we've got to note here, though, is the function of the church. The function of the church. Okay, so we've seen the description of the church. It's the household of God. Do you notice what Paul does next as he gives a further two metaphors here? Now, two metaphors, they show us not only what the church is, but I think the metaphors show us something about what the church should be doing, what the role of the church is. So you've got two metaphors. Let's take the second one first, shall we? Do you notice what it is? Would you look at verse 15, please? Paul calls the church a foundation of truth. Foundation of truth. What does that mean? And there's so much uh, construction work going on just now in London, isn't there? I got, that really blew me away when I moved down from Scotland just to see the sort of constant change in the landscape of London. There's all this construction work going on. Because of the sort of consistency of the construction work, uh, you've probably seen this scene even in the last couple of weeks. Like, you know, you're, you're walking along or you're driving along, you're on a bus, and you see a building having been or in the process of being demolished. And you've seen that all the time in London. Now, you'll have also noticed that what a construction company does at that point is that very often it will put up these massive big supports, big huge steel supports on neighboring buildings. You've seen that? You know, these sort of big red steel arms or legs that they attach to the sort of neighboring buildings. Why? To stop those buildings sort of shifting or moving during the demolition process. You've seen that? You've walked past that? These big steel supports. Well, see here, when Paul calls the church a foundation of truth, he's not talking about a building's foundation. He's not He has in mind that idea, you know, big, big steel structural supports. Or what does the ESV, some of you are using the ESV, the ESV translates it as buttresses. That's what Paul has got in his mind here. Now, wait a minute. What is he saying there about the church? What's the function? What is the role then of the church of Jesus Christ? Do you see what we are supposed to be? We're supposed to be those supports. We're supposed to be supports of truth. That our job in the church is to defend. 
would you say that? To reinforce the gospel to the world. What are we supposed to be doing? We're supposed to be working together to stop the truth being in any way moved by the subsidence of false teaching. What's the church, friends? The church is the support of truth. But we said there was a, a second metaphor. Do you see it as well? Look at verse 15. It's at the end of the verse. Paul says that the church is a pillar of truth. It's a foundation of truth, but it's also a pillar. What does he mean by a pillar? I think to understand this, you and I are going to have to think about the context in which Paul is writing here. Um, so let's let's ask and answer some really simple questions that you should know. We all know these questions by now, having gone through First Timothy. Okay, who's Paul writing to? He's writing to Timothy. Where is Timothy? He's in Ephesus. What do we know about Ephesus? Remember, we wanted to go on a congregational outing to Ephesus. What do we know about Ephesus? Ephesus was dominated by the vast temple of Artemis, wasn't it? A temple, get this, that had over 114 meter tall pillars. And these pillars, get this, they held up the most magnificent, vast marble roof of the temple. And Paul's writing to these people. So do you see what what Paul is saying about the church here? The church is not just the support. What is the church to do? We are to hold aloft the message of truth. Do you see it? What are we? We are pillars. We are supposed to be raising high the message of the gospel to the world. We're pillars. Do you see it? What's the function of the church? We are supposed to be elevating the, the, the precious name of Jesus for all the world to see. We're pillars. Pillars of truth. Now, now come on. Again, are there implications of that? Yes, there are. As you know, um, what the Kirk session are doing just now. So we've got a group of elders in the life of the church at LCPC. Now, what we've, uh, what we're doing currently is we are trying as a group of elders uh, to come up with a vision of where we want to see the congregation going over the next, what we say, three years, three to five years. And we meet together, we discuss it, and we are praying about this. And we will next month, God willing, uh, present that vision uh, to the congregation. And, and yes, okay, there'll, there'll be changes, perhaps, to the life of the congregation. But understand this. For this vision to work, every one of us, the elders, the deacons, every single one of us, must keep in view what we are learning tonight in First Timothy 3. Like, we must keep in view the great function and the great purpose of the church. What is the church? It is not just a social club where we come and befriend people. And it's, and it is not just a worship venue where we come and praise in a manner that we're comfortable doing. 
more than that. And it's not just a teaching establishment where we come and we learn about the Bible. Do you understand that the church is bigger than that? What is the church of Jesus Christ? It is a missionary organism. Like, why does the church exist? We exist to hold up, but also to hold out the good news of salvation into this dead and dark and dying city. Do you hear it? Do you see what God is saying in his word tonight? We are a foundation for truth. Yeah, we support, we reinforce the truth, but we must be a pillar, a pillar in London. We are raising up to this city the precious name and glory of the Christ. Third, last point, the message of the church. I was in conversation a couple of years ago with a minister, fellow minister. Although this guy um, would in no way, shape, or form, describe himself as a Bible-believing evangelical minister. Okay, not a chance. Uh, But he was, despite that, calling in conversation, uh, calling for the church to hold to the truths of the gospel, hold to the real message of the gospel. And you see the problem, don't you? His interpretation of what the true message of the gospel was is entirely different to the way that we would understand that. Now I think there's a similar concern that Paul has got in First Timothy 3. Because look at this. He doesn't leave his statements here about the function of the church undefined. Like do you see what I mean? Like he does not just say the church has got to be a foundation or a pillar of truth. And just leave it at that. Because we'd all be asking well what is truth then? So do you see what he does? He moves very, very quickly here to define what this truth involves. And to do that, what Paul does here is, quote, what I think seems to be a hymn. Certainly judging by, it's sort of, it's rhythmic in the original. And there's rhyming as well in in the original. So it seems to be a hymn. Now, here's the thing. This is what I'm going to ask you to do. Take a second. It's warm in here, and it's Sunday night, and we've had a tough week. I've said that before, and I'll say it again, and we are going to have a tough week. And we're just about to go into this. I'm asking you to take a second and just to think about how important this moment is. Because here, right now, and we're talking two minutes of this, but here, right now, what are we dealing with? Here, the Apostle Paul is giving the church of Jesus Christ essential elements of her message. Like, do you see how important this moment is? So what does he say? Well, I think the best way that we tackle this hymn is just to to do it in couplets or to notice the couplets or the pairs. So would you do that? Look at verse 16. What's the first pair? What's the message of the church? What do we hold up? What does he say? Jesus appeared in a body and was vindicated by the Spirit. So you see what that refers to, don't you? Jesus appeared in a body. Paul's talking about the incarnation, isn't he? 
fact that our Lord Jesus Christ took upon himself flesh, that he hungered, he thirsted like us, but what did he do? He bore our sin. Where did he bear our sin? In his body, in his flesh, the incarnation. But not just that, what does he go on to say? Look at this, that he was vindicated by the Spirit. Friends, he died and was raised. And he was declared to be in his resurrection by the Spirit of God, to be the Son of God. Do you see what forms part of our message to the world? What is it we hold up? We hold up that the sin-bearing Christ was rejected by men, but he was approved of by our God. Middle couplet. Look at the next two lines. Look at it. <laughs> Jesus was seen by angels and was preached among the nations. Now you get that, don't you? You see what that refers to. What happened after the resurrection? Think about it chronologically. What happened after the resurrection? After a period of time, Jesus ascended to glory, right? And who witnessed that great event, eh? The angelic heavenly messengers. And then what happened? The earthly messengers took over. Isn't that right? That we, the church of Jesus Christ, that we witnessed about the Lord Jesus Christ and to whom to all the nations of the world. And then notice with me the last couplet. Look at the last two lines of this hymn, man. Look at it. That Jesus was believed on in the world and was taken up into glory. And Friends, I want to say this to you. Isn't that something that we very readily lose sight of? That after Pentecost, what happened? We see Christ was preached by the church. What are we missing? Christ was believed on by the masses. One commentator writing on this verse, this is a love this quote. He says that the global mission of the church, it has been a global success. Haven't we lost sight of that? Like even tonight as I'm speaking to you, as we're gathering in here, we're not alone. There's millions and millions of people just like you, just like me. There's masses of people right throughout the world. And they're trusting in Jesus just now. They're praising Jesus as their Savior. And how does the hymn end? With that reminder that Jesus Christ is today in glory. And he is ready to... Return. Isn't it a wonderful hymn? Do you see what we hold up to the world? Now, friends, I want to end in exactly the same way as I ended this morning. Okay? I want to end with a very, very simple question. Tonight, what have we seen? If you were to go home and somebody said, what, what was, what is the boys beating about at church? What would you say? What's the church? What is the function, the role of the church? What have we seen? We've seen that we are part of the household of God. We've seen that we are to lift up the truth. Here's the question. Do you believe it? You've got that hymn there. Do you actually believe these fundamental, essential elements of the message of the church? Like you in here just now, do you believe that Christ has died and risen 
for sin. Do you believe in the one who, yes, just now is in glory, but is the very head of the church? Do you believe in him? Have you trusted in him? If not, why not? Tonight, do that. Tonight, put your trust in Jesus. And what will happen? You will become eternally part of that family. Part of the household of Almighty God. And then from that moment, you can assist us in here at London City Presbyterian Church to raise up and hold aloft the glory and name of the Christ. Let's pray.